0: Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33. We've gone from chapters 25 to 32, which of course have been King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon after he had taken Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. He now turns his attention to the surrounding nations. The last couple of weeks we've been studying about Moab and Edom and Tyre and Sidon. And then... Four whole chapters given to the judgment on Egypt was last week. So now we're through with all that. And now it's been Jeremiah and Ezekiel their whole life with this one heavy-duty message of uh, impending judgment. That was it. And now after these judgments, we have Ezekiel 33, where the Lord is sort of just laying it out to Ezekiel. I think it's sort of a word of encouragement, You've done your job. I've given you responsibility to give this message to the people. It wasn't an easy message, a very, very hard message that they had to take in, that they were going to be destroyed and taken into captivity for 70 years. Nobody wanted to hear it. There were false prophets that were saying just the opposite. And so now I find chapter 33 rather interesting. It's the, um, I, I'm titling this this morning, The Watchman's Warning. And let's pick it up where Paul read for us in verse uh, one through nine. Now again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, and when he sees a sword coming upon the land, if he blows a trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning If the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. And when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked man his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require it at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. As I just said, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when all is said and done at the end of the day, uh, they turned out to be true prophets from God. Um, They were taken into captivity. That's past now. And um, to their credit, it had to be extremely difficult. The Lord wouldn't even allow emotion to come into his judgment. Ezekiel had a wife that died, and he said, No mourning. I don't want you to mourn, which would have been a natural thing to do because of the seriousness of what's going to happen. It was unthinkable. You know? For the people that God would destroy, Jerusalem, much less Solomon's temple, that was just something that God would never, ever let happen. And it played well into the hands of the false prophet who were telling people, don't worry about a thing, you'll be going home soon. Well, they've been vindicated, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now God tells Ezekiel he's a watchman. And God holds him accountable to warn them. And if he doesn't, then the Lord will hold him responsible because of the judgment that has come. God's judgment on Israel was because they had left the true and the living God. And they turned to their idols and they became worse than the the nations actually that were around them. If we just flip back to chapter um, 31, um, the seriousness of the warning, it's not just that you die, because when you die, you're not dead. (laughs) Because everybody lives forever. And in chapter 31, the judgment of we talked about the glory and the pomp of Egypt, but the Lord is going to cut him down. He compared him to a tree, just like Nebuchadnezzar. He says, "I'm going to cut you down in size." And as a result of the judgment, uh, if you look at verses, uh, well, let's look at 14. He's talking to Egypt, comparing him to the tree, so that no tree by the waters may ever again exalt themselves for their height, nor set their tops among the thick uh, boughs that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them. He's talking figuratively about the the glory of Egypt. But then he says, for they have all been delivered to death. Then it gets detailed to the depths of the earth among the children of men who go down into the pit. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God in that day when it went down to hell, I caused um, Morning, and I covered the, the deep because of it so here judgment is given what we just read is warn them because uh, if they don't they're going to die in their iniquity well let's continue the thought process then what? well this tells us that there's a place called the pit um, struggled with the study I already have too many notes <laughs> and I really just wanted to get sidetracked and talk about the difference between uh, Sheol and hell, Gehenna, outer darkness, the lake of fire, and just get into in-depth about that reality. That after a person dies, it's not the end. And so many people in our, in our society and culture, their attitude is, when it's over, it's over. And time's up, that's it. And that's, that's the end of it. Well, that's not true. And my job this morning is um, uh, that we have... Um, it's the right word, that we're moved to the, the point that we understand this so well, the consequences of not warning people of what happens to them when they die. Um, you don't hear too many Bible studies on hell. Good place for an amen, huh? <laughs> but um, here we are, and we're going to talk about the reality of that this morning, but more importantly, that there is a war raging that the average Joe on the street really is totally unaware that there's a war going on. So as we begin our study this morning, let's start with that, that there is a war and uh, there are consequences of um, what a person actually believes in. We need to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, a lot of parables in Matthew chapter 13. I'm interested this morning as we start off with the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now parables are stories that the Lord would tell to explain what's really going on in real life. And in this case, he talks about the kingdom of heaven. So basically, we're living out that time. Jesus has come, he's the kingdom. He said the kingdom is among us. Now we're living in the church age. And basically, the parable that I'm going to read is he's saying this is the reality of the world that we live in right now. And he put it in a parable form. It's called the parable of the wheat and the tares. I'm picking it up in verse 24. It's in two sections. There's a the parable itself, and then there's the explanation. Let's read the parable first. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while he slept... His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servant of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have tares? And he said to him, An enemy has done this. And a servant said to him, Do you you want us then to go out and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while we gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. That's the parable. So we have here good seed. It grows good wheat. And then you have a counterfeit. Actually, tares look a whole lot like wheat. But there's no wheat to them. It's just chaff. There's no substance there. So that's the parable, but now the explanation we find down in verses 36, the disciples wanted to know what's up with that. What are you talking about? So in verse 36, Jesus said, he sent the multitudes away, and they went to our house, and his disciples came to him and said, Lord, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered, and he said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Well, Jesus came. For 30 years he lived. For three years his ministry was to explain his purpose for coming. It's the good seed. It's the word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So right now we've set a very narrow precedent, haven't we? Because his claim is the most radical claim that any human being has ever made. Either it's 100 percent absolutely true, or he's the greatest lunatic who ever lived, and there's no in between in what I just said. So what he's laying out here is that the Son of Man is telling the truth, but the field is the world. All right. Now we understand that the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So we got two things going on here. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Clear enough. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, that's what happens when a person dies in his sins, we read about in Ezekiel, so will it be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into a furnace of fire, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, we should really just stop and read that over and over again. Have you ever seen somebody wail to a point where they've been so distraught that um, it, they had no other choice but to wail? And the, the idea of uh, gnashing of the teeth is something that I, I sort of picture as the, the torment both psychologically and physically, according to Luke 16 uh, the rich man who died, experienced torment. He felt it, and he was thirsty. He wanted water. And so we find that's what happens to those who are somehow deceived by the counterfeit, the tares, that's in the world today. And so the Lord's just laying it out for us. He says, here's the reality in the world in which we live, two things that are going on. There's one very, very narrow way and then there's all these counterfeits. My goal this morning is to go to the tip of the iceberg, literally, and talk about the many different tares, just so that there's no confusion, um, at least here, of the, the reality that there's only one God and only one way to get to him. And But yet the reality is there's many religions in the world, many tares, that profess truth, that have billions of followers. And that's basically what this parable is saying. So as we start our study this morning, we need to understand we are in a war. And that there are two sides. One side, the good seed, has one message. The enemy who sold the tares, the devil, has many, 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 many counterfeits that are there this morning. When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, what's it going to be like in the last days? If you're in Matthew 13, just flip over to Matthew chapter 24. The thing that he was repetitive when the disciples came straight out and asked him, Lord, what's it going to be like when you come again? Four times in this chapter, the very first thing that he warns the disciples about Matthew 24, verse 4 is take heed that no man deceives you. How could you be deceived? By the many counterfeits of that the devil has sown that he calls tares. He says, take heed, for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now, I'll get into the list later, but the first one that comes to mind now, I remember back in 1981 at a pastor's conference and Mike McIntosh got up and held up a a full-page ad and um, it's just read, the Christ has come. His, his name is Lord Maitreya. His John the Baptist is Benjamin Cream. You can Google these guys today. Benjamin Cream is still saying he's, he's on his way, has been since 81. But th- this was taken out in a San Diego newspaper, but it was in every major newspaper across the world. And the guy's name is Lord Maitreya, and he's waiting to... Um, come out of the closet so to speak and um, as John the Baptist Benjamin Cream is not backing down one bit he's saying nope still going to happen so that's just one but the Lord says many and they will deceive many and that's verse 4 but now go up to verse 11 then many false prophets will arise up and deceive many and then down in verse 24 again we read For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. Now, it says many. Uh, The one that is going to be the most prominent will be the one uh, during the Great Tribulation. And he's called the false prophet. And he's able to um, uh, bring fire down from heaven, do supernatural signs. And because of the miracles that were done, it says the whole world was deceived because of the miracles that were done. Now, what does that tell me? Well, that tells me that um, not only did Jesus do signs and wonders, but remember uh, in Egypt, uh, Janus and Jambri. we got to go back. Again. Now i got to think Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston again. So go put your mind there. And they came out and they throw their their staff down as Moses turned his staff into a serpent. Pharaoh wasn't impressed. Janus, Jambri, they come out with theirs and they throw it down. And and they were able to duplicate many of the same miracles that the Lord did through Moses up to a point. And uh, my point with all that is we should, when the supernatural happens, I always want to know, okay, what doctrine goes along? What do you want me to believe because of what I just saw? And does it line up with the true plumb line of God's word? Well, right here we're told look out because it's going to happen. Look out for the signs and the wonders and that it doesn't prioritize the word of God. Um, You're familiar with the, the recent Calvary split, but there was a bigger one that happened in 81, where John Wimber wanted to emphasize the signs and wonder over the teaching of the word of God. I still got the letter that Chuck wrote in 1981. And he set John in his place rather quickly. And he says, that's not who we are. Yes, God does do the supernatural, but it never supersedes his word. And so your order is is out. If you want to do that, God bless you. See you later. But don't call yourself Calvary Chapel. So that's how the vineyard movement got started. And there's still some around today. And they got into all kinds of weird stuff. Boy, could I get sidetracked here and I better be careful. But after all, we started a little bit earlier today now that I think about it. The Toronto Blessing, that's what happened. It's all vineyard thing. Holy Laughter, Slain in the Spirit, Brownsville. All these things, the Kansas City prophet, John Wimber ended up there. I was just reading up on John yesterday, he died. Um, he was involved with supposedly healing others, but he himself died, I think it was 97 or so. Uh, that warped into what we call the Kansas City Prophets, which is a whole study within itself, which now it's called, one of the Kansas City Prophets is Mike Bickle. He's over what's called IHOP, International House of Prayer. And it's totally off the wall. But these are some of the things that is my job to warn you about to look out for. And, um, I've been around long enough. Chuck used to say that if we were around long enough, you'll see it just come right up back around again. And it's just the same old thing. He remembers Paul Kane, one of the Kansas City prophets, being an evangelist, uh, in his early days, going around evangelizing, and at the end, he would always end his prayer something like this. And he says, Lord, we just pray you'd provide all of our needs, and oh Lord, you know that new pair of shoes that I need, eight and a half small, And just pray, Lord, that you would just um, provide me with those. Really, (laughs) I I didn't. What I just said is absolutely a true prayer that was prayed. And anybody with any common sense goes, well, that guy's on the take. You know, we know where his motive is at, and we know where he's coming from. The Lord said, look out for him because they're there. And the Apostle Paul. And reading will be there in a second. I gotta warn you, the first part of our study this morning to make you I wanna hear those pages flipping back and forth. Um, one of the things that Paul said before his departure, he said, Look, I took no man's money. I was here, I worked with my own hands. And so as I'm departing, I want you to know I coveted no man's gold, I coveted no man's silver. It's the love of Christ that constrains me, nothing more, nothing less. And uh, that was his motive, and that should be the only motive of anybody in ministry. And another good place for a amen. amen. All right, having said that, now we are going to flip a little bit. Here, Jesus warned, but also that disciple whom Jesus loved called John. We can, I want you to go to First John. I said it right this week. Last week I just said John. I was corrected by several of you after the first service. First, First John chapter 4, where we get a warning. Now, i got to stop here and make something clear. The message that we read, if you don't warn them, Ezekiel, the blood's going to be on your head if you don't warn them. Now, what I'm here to tell you next is that we are not to take that as a watchman and say, if we don't warn people, then it's on my head and I'm accountable. That's not what the New Testament teaches. That was directed to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel only. Now having said that, does that mean we don't warn people? No, Jesus warned them. And now we're going to read that John is going to warn them. So warning, yes, but if you don't, it's not that God's going to hold you accountable for not warning them. But I believe that there's going to be a lot of regret someday, if um, you realize you had an opportunity and people knew you were a Christian and they died and there's this, we have this, this thought inside of us. I could have told them. I knew and I didn't. And um, so regret, yes, having the blood upon your own head, no. Is everybody with me with that? Making the distinction between Ezekiel and the warnings that are, are given here. So let's go to First John. And again, he acknowledges that there's more than one spirit. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Well, how do you do that? By the word of God. Whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of antichrist, which you have already heard was coming and now already is in the world. When we say antichrist don't think singular one antichrist yet future. No. He's saying this is in John's time. He's saying already there are many antichrists or Another way of saying it, counterfeits, tears that are out there. And so don't believe everything you hear. Have it match up with the scriptures. So we have Jesus' warning. We have John's warning. Let's turn to the Apostle Paul's warning in Acts chapter 20. Our flipping will be over in just a little bit here, but there are several more. Let's pick it up in verse 27. He says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God, Therefore, take heed to yourself and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, false doctrines, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years, and I did not cease to what? warn you, everyone day and night with tears? I take that literally, but it blows my mind to read it. How many Bible studies have you heard on Paul <laughs> um, for three years, warning, night and day, look, look out. After his example, there's going to come others that are going to set different examples. And by the time we get to the book of Revelation, which, which was written in 96 A.D., already the church had gotten sidetracked and there was the need for correction. Bad doctrines were coming in, the doctrines of the Nicolaitan, which is the hierarchy established in the church. And um, it didn't take long, so that the process was already there. Um, and this is, again, where. are where Paul talks about um, he didn't covet. He worked with his own hands, and his job was simply to um, um, share the whole counsel of God with them. But here we have Jesus giving a warning. We have John giving a warning. Now Paul's warning for three years after his departure. And um, I told you I was going to make you flip a little bit. Let's look at Galatians 1. This is, would be Paul again. And in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, after the simple gospel had been given to them, we read in verse 6, Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who calls you to the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Well, there's the gospel, but now he's saying there's a different one which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preaches another gospel to you, than what we have preached to you, let him be a curse. Now, I want you to remember that. The word there is anathema. Let them be eternally damned. Jesus would put it this way. After he had shared the gospel, let's say, with a young teenager. And that young teenager grows up, goes to college, and the professor's, his main goal is to undo that faith. The Lord says that anyone that undermines the faith of one of these little ones, it would be better for him that a millstone were put around his neck and he was drowned in the deepest ocean rather than stand before me on Judgment Day. If you took that precious faith that was there and somehow you took it away. That's the parable of the sower, by the way. Um, the seed was sown in the heart, but then comes who? The devil. And he tries to take the seed out of the heart, lest it would grow, and they would become a mature believer. I think some of the hottest places in hell are reserved for college professors that make it their, make it their goal to undermine the narrow way that the Bible teaches. And um, there's different levels that the Bible teaches about the terminology is some will be beaten with many stripes and some with lesser stripes, uh, implying a different degree of agony in heaven. And um, yeah, I think Hitler's agony is gonna be a whole lot greater uh, than 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 others because of the atrocities that he and others uh, were responsible for. So he says, let them be accursed As we have said before, so now I say to you, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Anathema, he repeats it. That's a heavy-duty statement. Let that person be uh, damned eternally because of the consequences. There is only one name under heaven whereby you must be saved. And if you tell somebody else, no, there's another way. And the rest of the study this morning is just, again, again, Hitting the, hitting the top of the the iceberg of the the terrors that exist in our world today. Now, as we look back at um, Ezekiel's time, the judgment and the counterfeit uh, in Egypt, well, they had their the gods of the Egyptians, Isis and Ra, the sun god, many of them. All of Satan's counterfeits actually had their origin in Babylon. And uh, before I go too much farther, I want to put something up on the screen that shows you the origin of all of Satan's counterfeits, where it began. There's two charts up here. The first one, we have to go back to, not Nebuchadnezzar, but before his time, back to Nimrod. So the first one says, the origin of the mystery of religions of Babylon. And it's interesting that we have a queen of heaven, a son, and a husband. Samarias was a queen, Tammuz was a son, and Nimrod was the husband. And um, we have in Egypt, it would have been Isis, um, being the mother. And you can just read the list there. Some are familiar, Venus, in other words. In Egypt, um, the name... Of the different countries and, and the names given to them, my point is it started here, and as you go through the different cultures, the different world um, empires—Egypt, Assyria, India, Asia, Greece, Rome, Babylon, uh, the Phoenicians—they all had their names, but they had this common denominator: that there was the father, there was a mother, and then there was a son. And um, the the next chart shows where continues on into the Greek and the Romans. Um, uh, Greek um, mythology. I'll talk about that a little bit towards the end as we talk about Mars Hill. But the similarity of these different gods are simply tares that have affected whole nations like the Roman Empire, like the Grecian Empire. They had these gods that they worshiped. And, um, you know, some we're familiar with, like Hercules and Zeus and, and Jupiter and Mars and, and Neptune, and, uh, the, between the Romans and the Greeks. All right. Um, so it had its beginning there. And as we look around the world, we see so many. And um, let's dive in. I'm just going to be able to scratch the surface. The largest second largest religion in the world is Islam, Um, but it's the fastest growing in the world today. Uh, There are 1.7 billion followers, 23% of the the global population is Muslim. Started in the 7th century in Mecca, Uh, its founder, of course, the leader was uh, Muhammad, the god they worship, they say, is one god, a very impersonal god whose name is Allah. Uh, the God of the Bible is not the same God as the God of the Quran. I need to emphasize that. The God of the Bible is not the God of the Quran. There's um, a doctrine out there teaching that's affected. Affected is the right word, too. A cancer. It's called Krisla, And it's a blending and the joining of these two. And what Satan's plan now is to bring about what the Bible says is going to happen, a one-world religion. And my Bible says it's going to end up in Rome. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But here, uh, they have their own Messiah uh, that they're looking for. You have the Sunnis and the Shiites, and um, that's a whole other subject that uh, Elijah, Abraham will be with us here the prophecy conference and he's the expert on that subject suffice to say for now the scripture is clear on this particular issue that that Allah and Jehovah are one and the same no they're not Matthew 12 so the scribe said to him well said teacher you have spoken the truth for there is one God and there is no other but he First Timothy two, five for there is one God and there's only one mediator between God and man and that's the man, Christ Jesus. Now that paints a very, very narrow way and it makes a very definite statement. I've been to India many, many times. In India with one billion people, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, the caste system and everything that's set up there is a whole lifestyle, and the basic premise with the caste system—if you're familiar with it—you had the hierarchy, which are the Brahmas, and then it goes all the way down four levels later to the Dalits, or, or um, uh, they're the poorest of the poor, they're the outcasts, and the goal, really, that's taught by the uh, gurus, is that you know this is where karma comes in as far as they're concerned. You have so much good karma, so much bad karma. You make it through your life and you're judged on that scale. If you had enough good karma, well you didn't reach nirvana yet so you gotta come back and maybe you get out of the basement and you might get up one step higher. And this is a process that goes on and on and on and it's repeated, it's called reincarnation. And one billion people, why are you saying it Dwight? Because it's simply one of the tears that Jesus talked about in Matthew 13. One of many. But one billion people believe it? Yeah, they do believe it. And um, their, their hope is that someday they will reach that state of their karma, reaching the state where they finally reach nirvana, and it's nothing more than a lie from the pit that's been swallowed, and the souls, every day there's people that die with that belief. Hebrews says nine, if they say there's many lives and many chances, my Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And that flies in the face of Hinduism and reincarnation. Everybody with me so far on that one? And so we see that, um, you know, as much as I love the Beatles, to their fault and their ignorance and their shame, uh, they introduced Transcendental Meditation to my generation. I used to live with a guy in Oshkosh that was the the TM instructor, and I got to know the inner workings. Um, Even when I became a Christian, I'd pick this guy's brain about um, Transcendental Meditation and the different mantras that are given to a person, because when you take the class, you're given a mantra And basically, you know, the most common one is OM, but each one is supposed to be given a different one. Well, in getting to know my friend, he says, well, everybody doesn't get a different one because we only have so many of them. So when we get through our list of matras, we just go back to square one and give this other person the same mantra. Well, in TM, but also in yoga, I want to address this. Because a lot of people believe that yoga is something that is benign. Working out, you're stretching out. No, you're not. Um, Yoga is, again, comes from, ask any guru um, if yoga is simply a benign (laughs) way to stretch out and exercise, and they'll laugh at you. Because at the beginning of every uh, yoga class, uh, at least in India, and they have different versions of it. I'll probably mispronounce this. It's called the, the Namaste, which means I bow to the God within you. you, know, you whenever you're greeted by an Indian, you know, they're always doing this sort of thing. And it ties, it ties into um, their, their matras. The, what they're chanting is the name of Hindu demonic spirits, and they're actually invoking them to become one with them. And that's called subtlety, that's called deception. That's why the serpent is called the deceiver, that he is that sly in getting people to invite you became a Christian because you asked Jesus into your life. Evidently the Lord has made up that God has man has free will. And you just can't go around and demon possess somebody. There has to be that place of introduction and welcome but it can be done naively as a kid with a ouija board or some of the games that are out there in the market today but you know now we have one billion people and um, that's a lot of souls and uh, when they chant they're chanting and I I can't pronounce the uh, (laughs) I can't pronounce the the prayer I got my wife, I said, would you read this for me this morning? And she started reading it and then, and she got around the first, second word after the third Hindu word, she gave up. So I'm not gonna even go there. <laughs> I'm just gonna give you the translation. But this is opening um, meditation uh, in a yoga class. Um, May the teacher and the taught be protected together. This is the opening prayer. May the teacher and the taught be nourished together. May they work together with great energy. May their study be enlightened and fruitful. May the teacher and the taught never hate each other. Aum, peace, peace, peace. The closing prayer, again, I'm not going to tempt the the Hindi. Um, May all be happy. May all be free from disease. May all see things... um, Graciously, may none be subject to misery. Om, peace, peace, peace. And and actually, it's not much different than when we go to Haiti, and there's voodoo. Now, when we were there, Bastia took us to um, one of the most uh, famous places for voodoo in all of Haiti. There's a waterfall, and at the top of it, there's this big cave and. And they've turned it into a major place where people come and they invite the spirits by working themselves up into a frenzy, either with beats with drums or a lot of rum, and basically inviting and opening the, the spirit to possess. And I said, well, KP, I said, Basio, what happens? Does it? Have you ever been to one? where you've seen it happen, he says, oh yeah, everybody in Haiti knows about that. He says when a person's possessed, they, they can take on supernatural strength. They can climb that tree like right there in a matter of 10, 15 seconds. And he's going on telling us stories that that um, um, would blow most Americans' mind. And the question that arises in, in my thought process, if it's so prevalent and obvious In a place like Haiti, why is the American so naive to the spiritual realm in a spiritual world? Easy answer. As long as he can preoccupy your time without doing a serious Bible study on these issues and get you more interested in other things, why should he mess with you at all? Why should you um, call out for a savior if he he can cause you to be content with the things of this world? And that's why John says, love not the world or the things that are in the world. For he who loves the world doesn't have the love of the Father in him. He'll leave you alone, but get born again. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you become a threat. Because now you become an object that we're told to look out for. Remember, Jesus said, Peter, I prayed for you. Why? Oh, well, Satan's been eyeing you up. You're a spokesman. You've been speaking on behalf, and you've been speaking very openly and so who does the enemy focus in on? Guys like Job. Guys like Peter. And they became they become the target. All right, let's take it a step farther. Let me just say this: there's no such thing as Christian yoga. That is an oxymoron. But it's it's crept in under the guise of it's benign, you know. I'm just exercising. I got a simple solution for you. If you want to do, if if you if you want to stretch out. Stretch out. If you want to work out, work out. <laughs> you know that's what treadmills are for. If you can't, you can't. That's a, That's what the um, uh, the crunch bar is for. You know, and uh, don't don't be sucked into it. Speak out against it. Warn the people. There's more that's going on here than than what you realize. All right, in Israel, it was Baal. Baal was introduced by Jezebel, and it caused the whole country to turn from the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the worship of Baal until he had the great shootout, with the four hundred prophets of Baal against one guy, Elisha. And um, Israel repented that day, and um, you know, um, we have a whole nation. that fell because of the worship of of Baal. In Peru, let's go to this side of the world, you have the Inca religion. It's known for human sacrifice or God's demanded it. We have American Indians and the Great Spirit. Today we have the New Age mystics. We have uh, the emergent church. We have, I just heard, uh, my heart broke after I heard a good friend of mine is a Calvary Chapel pastor who took a fall. But before he did, he started rereading the early church fathers and the Catholic mystics. And um, he started down that slippery slope. And it cost him. And I grieve for, for my friend and the mess that he got himself into. But again, um, I can't name them all or go through them all so let me just recommend something at this time. Walter Martin's classical work is called The Kingdom of the Cults. There's it's, it's this thick and he he covers every cult that's out there today. And I'll quickly try to go through them. He starts with psychology. And we could talk about an hour just about psychology. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're psychoanalyzed to find out what your problem is and why you are the way you are, and it was probably your mom or your dad's fault. No, it's your fault, <laughs> nobody else's fault. But you can, get, you can pay 150 bucks an hour and have somebody tell you that. Hypnosis, what is hypnosis? Putting you into an altered state of consciousness, opening yourself up to, um, again, the spiritual realm. You have Jehovah Witnesses, You have Christian Science. You have Mormonism. I'm simply going down Walter Martin's book: Um, Spiritism, uh, Zen Buddhism, the Bahai faith, um, Seals and Croft. You old sixty people—that's that was their thing—was Bahai religion, the Worldwide Church of God uh, under Herbert Armstrong, the Unification Church, Scientology, Eastern religion, Islam. cult evangelism the road to recovery unitarianism universalism which is the teaching that everybody is going to um, go to heaven Uh, we'll have some of the speakers speaking on Rob Bell and um, his book that's real popular right now Velvet Elvis and Love Wins and basically the premise there is God is such a loving God he would never send anybody to hell well it sounds good him a lot of money, he sold a lot of books, but it's heresy, and I say let him be anathema, because what he's doing, instead of telling the truth, he's actually presenting another gospel. And Paul said, going back to Galatians, if they or anybody else preaches another gospel, let them be anathema. Um, at this time, I'm going to quote from a book and begin to wind things up here. Um, You know I have a half an hour left when I say that, right? (laughs) All right. Let's turn, if you would, to um, the book of Revelation, chapter 3. The church there is Pergamos. And I want to trace through history if the root of occultism started in Babylon. And when Babylon fell, by the way, I'm quoting from an old Assembly of God guy. His name is Frank M. Boyd. This is an old book written in 19... uh, 67 but um, it's deep and he's done his homework so I'll give credit where credit is due and when I quote him if you're in Revelation 2 uh, it says in verse 13 to the church of Pergamos I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is so oh, that's interesting where Satan's throne is where you dwell where Satan's throne in and you hold fast to my name But uh, interesting that he mentions that that's where Satan's thrown in. Well, here's what um, Frank Boyd connecting the dots. Now, we've studied the fall of Egypt. We've studied the fall of Assyria. Um, We we know that uh, Babylon fell in one night and that was the famous writing on the wall. Well, remember in in Babylon, Daniel's always um, being called in. But before Daniel comes in, the soothsayers and magicians and those that had incantations, they would come in and they would try to tell his dream. They couldn't do it. But my point is that they did have um, some magical abilities. And what happened to them? Well, this is what, this is where Frank Boyd comes in. I'm quoting him now. Satan is not yet in hell, nor yet in the abyss. He is the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. He is still very active in things spiritual and political in the world today. The significance of the expression, Satan's throne, this is his study on the book of Revelation, and now he's commenting on a church of Pergamos. The the significance of the expression Satan's throne is discovered in the history of the Babylonian mysticism. Uh, We shall discuss this at a greater length when we get to chapter 17. But sufficient to say here that Babylon from the days of Nimrod was the early focal point of Satan's system of religion. The Chaldeans, or the Babylonian priest, fleeing before the conquering Persians. Remember, it was the Medo-Persians that conquered Babylon. As they were fleeing, they took refuge and settled in Pergamus. Their worship consisted in the deification of the emperor. Um, Attalus III, the king of uh, Pergamus in 133 BC, was also priest of this cult, and willed his title into the hands of the Romans. The title of the Babylonian high priest was Pontifus Maximus, or Chief Bridge Builder. Building bridges to what is the question. The Chief Bridge Builder, Pontifus Maximus, meaning the one who spans the gap between mortals and Satan and his host. Julius Caesar first assumed this royal priesthood under the Latin title Pontifus Maximus. Thus divine honors were conferred upon Roman emperors, now catch this, and later upon the popes, that they became Pontifus Maximus. And we follow the trail from Babylon to Pergabus right to Rome. And when he says, we'll talk about it more in Revelation 17, the world religion that exists in the end clearly is the city of Rome, the city of seven hills. And, the, and all we're doing here this morning, and that's all I'm going to read from this book, it's out of print. And no, you can't borrow it. <laughs> okay, what I'm going to put on the screen is uh, next here. And, um, you know, it's never our intent to um, uh, nitpick or or pull out any one denomination or my goal this morning is to show you just how broad false doctrine and false teaching is. But what I'm gonna put on the screen next is the world religion, the main thing that's happening in Christianity today is a dumbing down of doctrine so that there'll be more unity and so that everybody will eventually make it back to Mother Church who has certain dogmas that are just as direct that what I'm about to say to you this morning is from them, just like Paul pronounced it to the Galatians, let them be an anathema, they're gonna pronounce those same judgments on me this morning because of what I'm about to share with you. So I don't think we have this one. Um, Do we have this one on screen, the 22? Catholic traditions, I don't remember if I talked to them about this, but um, um, these did not exist in the first 400 years of Christianity, and when we take and we find the dots being connected from Babylon to Pergamus and then to Rome, we have new things being added that are another gospel. What's another gospel? Infant baptism. There was no infant baptism until 431 B.C. Uh, there was the Mass. Uh, we talked about this yesterday in men's prayer. We have to be in John 4, 5, and 6. And it's it's the slam dunk scriptures that Roman Catholics will say unless you eat of this body and drink of this blood, you cannot be saved. Well, they're taking it out of context because no Jew would ever drink blood, period. That's the big no-no. And so what it means and what we talked about as one of the guys brought it up as a question well what does it mean well the Lord was just laying out what it really means to follow after him to be like him to put on his mind he also said I am the door does that mean he's the door I am the bread of life does that mean he's bread no he's saying you have to take on my mind you have to be like me he said come and learn of me I'm lowly And make of heart and mind, and you'll find rest for your souls. And to take that out of context and make it the Mass, the Eucharist, and if you don't take it, then your sin remains. The Mass is actually called transubstantiation a sacrifice every single week. Well, the book of Hebrews blows that out of the water because it says, no, there's only one sacrifice for all time. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. End of discussion. It doesn't need to be repeated week after week after week. And that's what the Eucharist and the Mass is. Purging sin, 593. Praying for the dead, the year 600. Praying to Mary, the year 600. Worship of images, 786. Declaring saints, the year 995. Mandatory Mass, about the same year. The celibacy of priests has gotten the Catholic Church into so much trouble when the Bible teaches just the opposite. Paul says, if you got the gift that I have, good, but very few people have. But in order to serve in Roman Catholicism, you have to take the vow of celibacy and look look at the trouble and the lawsuits that have happened as a result of it. And so many have gotten disheartened and written everything off completely. So they don't want anything to do with any of it because they saw through all of it. The inquisition, the indulgences being sold, transubstantiation, confessing your sins when you can go straight to the Lord, forbidding to read the Bible, purgatory, um, adding many books to the Bible, Mary born without sin, the infallibility of the Pope, who's changing everything by saying everybody, really, if you believe in one God, then you're fine. And um, I could go on and on, except to say this. What I've just done to them, and the biggest one here is that you also have to have good works in order, along with salvation in order to go to heaven. And in their catechism, it says, if anybody ever says that to you, let that person be anathema. So that's what I'm telling you right now. So according to them, I know I'm gonna get labeled as a Catholic basher, I usually do. No, 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 no. Who's doing the bashing? They're bashing me because I said that, no, It's Paul's very, very clear. It's either grace or it's works, but it's not, you can't combine the two. Otherwise, grace would not be grace and works would be works. Now, do we do good works because we're born again? Absolutely, and you'll be rewarded accordingly, but it has absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. Look at the thief on the cross. What did he have going for him? He was a thief. Never said the sinner's prayer, never went to church, never got baptized, and yet the Lord saved him. Why? Simple prayer, Lord, just, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. Is that easy? Yeah, we read it yesterday in John six. The disciples said, Lord, what works can we do for you? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. That's it, period. <laughs> that is the work of God. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, when Jesus said you'll know the truth and it'll set you free, that's the only thing that really will set you free. When you realize that you're out of the equation and it's all about what Jesus did and we're simply receiving his grace, that will set you free. But if you try to add something to it, you're gonna fall. And you're gonna have a guilty conscience thinking I'm doing, not doing everything that I should. All right, Ezekiel was a watchman. He was given a hard message. He was faithful to his generation. He proved to be right in the end against the false prophets and the false gods. His job of warning them, or they will go to hell. Turn to Matthew chapter 11 real quick. I just threw this in. I didn't know if I was, have time for it, but I got a little time left. Matthew 11, I'm going to put something up on the screen right now. Go ahead and put the picture up, guys, of the cross. We have this hanging in a couple of places in the church today. And I'm, As we close things up, I want you to know that if you don't warn somebody about going to hell, that, that it's going to affect your salvation Then that blood's on your head. I mean, we got that clear, right? That was to Ezekiel, not to us. But having said that, Um, in Matthew 11 in verse 21 Jesus is talking to to the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and he says woe to you Chorazin woe to you Bethsaida for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon we just studied them this is why it's important to study Ezekiel we studied the judgment of Tyre and Sodom and uh, if would have been done in Tyre and Sodom, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nineveh did. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell because of the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom It would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Wow. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. These people watched Jesus do miracles and they still did not believe on him. Therefore, they're gonna be held to a higher degree of accountability. That's what's being taught here. Now I'm gonna close with this, this question and have you turn to Acts 17 at the same time. Because one of my goals this morning was that we realize the consequences of somebody dying in our sins. And um, we have this book that lays it out so clearly to us about the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. But here's my question for you. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that when people die and they die outside of Christ, that they will go to hell? Do you really believe that? This is what a condemned criminal said when he's being led to the gallows. His name is Charles Peace. He was one of the greatest of criminals, was brought to justice. He was a burglar, a forger, a a double murderer. He was condemned to death. As he's being led to the scaffold, the chaplain walked by his side, offering what we call the consolation of religion. As the chaplain spoke of Christ's power to save, the wretched man turned to him and said, do you believe that? Then he said it again. He said, do you believe that? He said, if I believe that, I would willingly crawl across England on broken glass to tell every living person I knew if I believed that. Do you believe it? And do you believe it to the point that you actually know loved ones who you've never even made the... And this, please don't take this as a guilt trip. But remember I told you the warning that was given, the watchman's warning. We've been given much. But I don't, I don't want to ever stand before the Lord and say, I never gave a Bible study like we needed to have a Bible study this morning. Or you can say, well, I, I never knew that. Well, now we know that. So, now we've been given more accountability. And the reality that there are there's a war going on, there are many other religions, are we going to capitulate and say, oh, can't we all get along and can't we just do the Chrislam thing and... and um, Show Christian love. That's the kind that usually comes under. Shouldn't we be loving one another? No. What did we read in John? Discern the spirits. Discern the spirits. What spirit are we talking about here? Who do you want me to join with? You want me to put down all my doctrinal beliefs so that we can all be one happy family and have a one world religion? By the way, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a one world religion. But in Philadelphia, the Church of Philadelphia, that's who I want to be. He said you are little in strength but you did not deny my word and you did not compromise with this book. This picture says it all. It shows a very narrow way to get to the other side. And we find that the majority is falling into the lake of fire. It's pretty graphic. Pretty powerful actually. I mean the first time I saw it I said I want one of those. And yet we see our own generation, and are we willing to, um, without putting a guilt trip on people, willing to talk to them about it? That's why I have you in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and this is where we will close this morning, is will you warn them? And how do you do it? I get in men's prayer yesterday, we, we talked about the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan and Jesus was a Jew. And they didn't get along. Because um, Jews and Samaritans don't get along. But the thing I love about the story is how the Lord opened this woman up by asking her questions. There's a proverb that says, a wise man draws out counsel like a deep well. There were deep things way down in this woman's soul that she wanted answers to. And here's the son of God, and he can give them to her. But he's got to break through, first of all, right? So he says, well, you know, I can give you some water, living water, you'll never have to come here again. And if you drink a bit, you'll never thirst again. Well, she called him a Jew at first, and then she said, well, sir, give me some of this water. So he went from being a Jew to a sir. That's pretty good. What's happening? She's opening up. And then he said, okay, deal. Go call your husband. Oh, I wish he would have said that oh, I don't have a husband. Oh, that's right, you don't. Uh, You've had five of them, and the guy you're living with right now, he's not your husband, so I guess you're telling me the truth. And she said, sir, I believe that you're a prophet. What's happening here? Jew, sir, prophet. But now she opens up like a flower. Now he has her. And now the deep questions come bubbling out to the surface. She says, you know, us Samaritans believe we should worship on this mountain. Him. you Jews say we should be worshiping God in Jerusalem see that was deep down inside and he brought it out and um, the Lord says neither neither no he says the father is looking for those to worship him in spirit and in truth it's not a place you worship the Lord where <laughs> you worship the Lord he lives in you you are the temple of God and now the final question that you really wanted to know because she's getting suspicious. She says, you know, the word is out that the is gonna come someday. And then the Lord looked at her and said, the one who's speaking to you is he. And then she had all of her answers. What did she do? She left everything. And she went back to her hometown. And she said, come and listen to a man who told me things that nobody else could know except the Messiah. So they come out, they listen to the Lord, He stays two days in that village, and a whole lot of people get saved. And I bring up the story because what Paul does here in Acts chapter 17 is when you share with people, do you turn them off in the first 10 seconds? Or are you using, like the proverb said, wisdom? Use a little tact. Get them to start asking questions. And we read here, uh, let's pick it up in verse 21, uh, Acts 17. This is, this is Mars Hill. And um, on one of our trips to Israel, we actually got to go to Athens. And we went to Mars Hill. Our guide was, we were so grieved after the first two days, her name was Helen. And all she would talk about were the Greek gods, this Greek God was this, and this Greek God was that. And uh, we decided we were going to rename our guide Helen. So we called her Myth Helen. We had had it up to here with her, Miss. Let's have a Bible study at Mars Hill. So I actually got to give this Bible study where Paul was at Mars Hill. Okay, let's pick it up in verse 17 i want to go back to 16. Now when Paul wanted waited for them at Athens, the spirit provoked him within him when he saw that the city was given over to all these idols. Therefore he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentiles worshiping in the marketplace daily and with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him And some say, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of a foreign god because he preaches of them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Eric May be known what this new doctrine is of which you spoke. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, they spent all their time in doing nothing else but either to sell or to hear some new thing. How many people do you know that want to sell something or want to hear something new? Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. Notice what he didn't say. You bunch of heathens, don't you realize you're on the road to hell? <laughs> he didn't say that. He used some tack. He says, You know, I perceive that you guys are a pretty religious bunch of people. Uh, For I was passing through and I considered the object of your worship. I even found this altar with the inscription to the unknown God. He found something that he could link that would open them up. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, let me tell you about him. He's the God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth. does not He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all of us life, breath, and all things. And he has made one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined... Their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that you should seek the Lord in the hope that you might grope for Him and find Him. See, now He's telling them they got to do, the work has been done. Now the ball's in their court. If you'll seek Him, and then He says, though He's not far from each one of us, you know how far the Lord is away from a person getting saved? 18 inches. 18 inches, that's the distance from here to here. That's the distance from understanding the gospel, believing it here, and inviting it here, and turning from your sins. For in him we live and move and we have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. Now that's that's great, he's quoting poets? Can Christians do that? Yeah, yeah Paul Simon, man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. I've said that a hundred times from this pul- pulpit. Because there's guys from my generation that are in Simon and Garfunkel. And what he says is absolutely true. Man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. So he's using their poets to accomplish his purpose. One is saying, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by man's hands, devices. Truly, these In times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to what? Repent. That's what's left out of the gospel today. There is no conversion without conviction. There's no salvation without repentance. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. That's pretty clear to me. Because he has appointed a day on which we'll be judged And he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man who is ordained and is given assurance of this by the raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That'll happen. And others said, well, we'll hear more about this later. He had some people's interest. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Deocinus and and Ari. The Eregite, a woman named uh, Damaris, and others with him. So as we look at this, um, uh, title was uh, The Watchman's Warning. The goal of it as we make our way through Ezekiel is um, we've been given much. And uh, we have so much time and we should take advantage of the opportunities and actually pray for them. That the Lord would open up doors to share with people. Why? Because we don't want any to perish. The Father said, I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? Amen? Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And as we go, Lord, we commit this book of Ezekiel, the sort of sidetrack this morning of talking about the seriousness of eternity. And Lord, we just commit to the Holy Spirit and all your word. And uh, pray that we'd receive this good exhortation to redeem the time and to be serious about the Great Commission. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.